Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Buddhist Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Olivia Porter, one of the hosts of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Sam Van Schaik about his new book, Buddhist Magic, Divination, Healing and Enchantment Through the Ages, published by Shambhala in 2020. Sam is the head of the Endangered Archives Program at the British Library and has previously worked on the International Dunhuang Project, also at the British Library. He specializes in the study of Tibetan Buddhist scripts from Dunhuang. His new book, Buddhist Magic, is an exploration of the role that magic has played in the history of Buddhism. As far back as we can see in the historical record, Buddhist monks and nuns have offered services including healing, divination, rainmaking, aggressive magic and love magic to local clients. Sam argues that magic and healing have played a key role in Buddhism's flourishing, yet they have rarely been studied in academic circles or by Western practitioners. The exclusion of magical practices and powers from most discussions of Buddhism in the modern era can be seen as part of the appropriation of Buddhism by Westerners, as well as an effect of modernization movements within Asian Buddhism. However, if we are to understand the way Buddhism has worked in the past, the way it still works now in many societies, and the way it can work in the future, we need to examine these overlooked aspects of Buddhist practice. In Buddhist magic, Sam takes a book of spells and rituals, one of the earliest that has survived from the Silk Road site of Dunhuang, as the key reference point for discussing Buddhist magic in Tibet and beyond. Welcome to the podcast, Sam. Thanks, Olivia. I was wondering if we could kick this off by maybe you telling us a bit about your background and how you came to Buddhist studies. Yes, sure. So I was, uh, well, I mean, I suppose I could go as far back as in my teens in the 80s when uh, I was living in Kathmandu because my father was working there uh, in the international aid uh, project and that was uh, about three years of my life and uh, at that time uh, as you may know in the Boda stupa area there was quite a large Tibetan exile community and so I was somewhat exposed to that although at that point not particularly uh, inclined to um, practice Buddhism or, or study it, but it uh, certainly had an effect. Uh, and later on, I was able to spend quite a lot of time in Bhutan because my parents were working there in the early 90s. So that was a, an early exposure to Buddhism, especially the Tibetan form of Buddhism. And then going into university uh, a little later, I studied, uh, I did comparative religion uh, and specialized in Buddhism in the the final years and did uh, the Tibetan Buddhist course at Manchester, which was run by David Stott, who was also uh, practicing as a a Buddhist teacher, as Lama Jampa Taye. So I both studied with him and began to study uh, Buddhist practice and meditation with him in, so both as an academic teacher and as a, a Buddhist Lama. And then I went on to do a PhD also at Manchester on the Longchen Nyintik, a Tibetan Dzogchen practice text, which was also uh, the tradition which I was uh, practicing in at the time. So all of that was done without a particularly uh, clear career path in mind, but I was lucky enough 
that towards the end of the PhD, a position came up at the British Library. At that point, just for a year to catalogue part of the uh, Silk Road collections that were collected by Oral Stein in the early 20th century. Uh, and that was, at that point, uh, some wooden documents from the Tibetan military back in the period of the Tibetan Empire in the 8th century. And that went on to working on Tibetan Buddhist manuscripts, uh, tantric Buddhist collections from Dunhuang, um, to work on paleography and scripts, and uh, working on Tibetan Zen tradition, uh, and then more recently on this uh, Buddhist magic topic that I've been working on. Before finally I, I left, as you said, the International Dunhuang Project and uh, joined the Endangered Archives program last year in February. Okay, great. So I was wondering if you could move on to talk about what motivated you to write Buddhist magic specifically. Yes, well, it's been a long time coming in a way because I started a blog back in, uh, I think, 2007, earlytibet.com, um, and I used that to write about interesting manuscripts I came across in cataloging and other research work at the library. And I think probably 2010, I wrote about a book of spells, which I'd come across and not really had enough time to go into in detail. And I raised the question of you know, how interesting it is that we find uh, monks, Buddhist monks doing magic, and that this little book of spells has interesting things like uh, spells to make water run upstream instead of downstream, and uh, spells for invisibility and things like that. And... Um, that was only one post on the blog, but it was was and still is the most popular, I think, both just out of interest, uh, but also out of, a, I think, a concern among Western Buddhists that, uh, is this really Buddhism? Is this really true that Buddhist monks were practicing magic? So looking at the responses to that, uh, I thought, well, this would be interesting to go into a bit more deeply and see whether there's a, a book to be written here. So I took that Book of Spells as the basis for the book, doing a thorough translation of it, uh, and then using that translation to really jump off and look at what we mean by Buddhist magic, what we even mean by magic, and the role that it's played in the Buddhist tradition, not just Tibetan Buddhism, actually, but uh, throughout the Buddhist tradition, throughout its history. Great. Um, I noticed in your introduction, you make it really clear that it's a book about magic rather than a book of magic. Could you tell us a bit about why you made that distinction so clear? <laughs> yes, well, maybe maybe I'd be a little bit too concerned that uh, people might pick up my book and decide to start casting spells. Uh, as you mentioned at the beginning, there are a few aggressive spells, as I call them, in there, including one for bringing down a lightning or a meteor strike upon somebody. Um, so I, I want to make clear that uh, I don't endorse that kind of activity, <laughs> and uh, particularly that, uh, seriously, this is a manuscript of Buddhist practices, but it doesn't contain, there's no transmission lineage, it's not a living lineage of practice, there's no commentary, there's no lama to give an oral uh, instruction or contextualize it. So it's uh, very interesting and very useful for uh, understanding of uh, the practice of Buddhist magic historically, but it's not there to be practiced. So this is a book about 
a book of magic, but it's not uh, something I'm putting out there for um, practical purposes. Yeah, I guess it's good to make the distinction clear that you're not responsible for any strange things happening if people start <laughs> taking these too seriously. Um, why do you think it is that Buddhist magic has been so overlooked? And what is it about Buddhist magic that's so hard to define? Um, yes, two two questions. So I'll answer the first one. Why has it been overlooked? Um, so I discussed a bit in the book, this is something that Buddhism shares with other religious traditions where there's a kind of concern that, uh, especially since the 19th century, since modernity, since our kind of um, valorization of science over religion and superstition, that uh, if we focus too much on magical traditions, it'll make our religion look like it's just a a kind of another form of of superstition. So this is something that uh, has occurred elsewhere as well in uh, in, uh, the field of Judaism, for example, uh, there's been a unwillingness until recently to really write about the rich tradition of Jewish magic. Uh, I think for the same purposes as a, a historian of that tradition, which I quote, has uh, has written about this as well. Um, likewise, in in Buddhism, there's uh, been a presentation of of Buddhism in the West as you know verging on a philosophy rather than a religion, uh, quite different from other religions because it's uh, it's about ethics and it's about uh, living a good life um, and it's not about belief and it's not about superstition so all of the uh, this uh, seems to be undermined by if we focus too much on the, the magical side of buddhism i think that's the fear that's behind the lack of discussion of this material um and you asked uh, there was a second part of that question maybe you could remind me um what makes it so hard to define mm. So, I mean, what makes magic hard to define partly is that it's got such a long history. So, in our tradition, it's um, in the Christian tradition, magic has been set against uh, religion. So, magic is what's practiced by people who don't follow uh, the Christian tradition. Uh, and therefore, it's always been a, a negative thing. It's always been something to be sort of othered in terms of, uh, of religion. Now, in the 19th century, there, there was a different um, use of magic, which was people like James Fraser, who came up with the model that you have magic in societies first, followed by religion, and then followed by science. So it's a clearly uh, developmental process, and magic is at the bottom of it. Um, and the, his definitions of, of, of magic were uh, that it's, you know, unlike organized religion, it's, it's not... Uh, is not an organized church um, and it's to do with principles like sympathetic magic um, it's to do with uh, with kind of basically misunderstandings of nature that were not to be corrected until um, mankind became scientific western mankind in particular so the word magic does have a troubled history and there's uh, a lot of argument for dropping it all together i found it useful uh, looking at this book of spells to start with, and then thinking about why do we call things magic? Why was it my impulse to look at this Tibetan book of spells and call it magic? Um, and I think actually there was good reason. That's, that's what I explore in the book. So there are other traditions across the world that have been explored using that word magic. 
like the Greek magical papyri, like uh, Chinese uh, magical um, wooden slips, like um, cuneiform tablets from uh, Mesopotamia. All of these have been studied in recent decades in terms of being magical texts. So in one of the chapters of the book, I, I do a brief review of, of some of this magic uh, across the world and, and look at what is the what joins them together, or to use uh, Wittgenstein's term, what's the family resemblance that uh, these traditions, which are called magic, share. And I came up with three basic principles for the study of Buddhist magic, based on that and based on the Book of Spells. And the first, and probably most important, was that these spells, these rituals, were dedicated to the things of this life. So it's about curing people, it's about um, dealing with problematic people, it's about uh, not going hungry, about successful pregnancies and uh, and childbirth, um, and, and things like that, plus the occasional wacky stuff like uh, invisibility and flying. And this is shared with Buddha, Buddhism, shares it with uh, other traditions of magic in the world. Uh, the second thing was that, unlike other religious activities, there is a very immediate uh, relationship between the, the cause and effect here. So the Book of Spells tend to say, if you do this, if you carry out this practice, if you say these mantras and you uh, uh, mix up this ointment, then uh, the patient will be cured in uh, two or three days, or the spirit will depart uh, immediately, or, or that kind of thing. So it's not; it's a much more clear and direct um, articulation of the effect of the spell than you get in in other practices like just uh, uh, making meritorious offerings or or, or praying uh, to, um, to to a deity. So that's the second thing: that clear, um, clear and immediate effect. And the third thing was looking at the manuscripts themselves, the books of spells. So again, across traditions in uh, in Buddhism, but also in in medieval Europe and uh, in in Greece and uh, in Mesopotamia, these short rituals for worldly worldly um, effects were gathered together, uh, and um, you see the same cluster of concerns again and again, uh, as I said about medicine and um, uh, crops and cattle and um, personal relationships and, and that kind of thing, all kind of clustered together in, uh, you find them in uh, in books and in tablets and in scrolls and so on across the world. So those are the kind of three things that I use to define magic as I was talking about it in the book, actually coming out of the materials itself rather than a, a theory that I wanted to kind of impose from the beginning when selecting the materials. One of the things that I found really interesting about this kind of cross-cultural magic um, uh, overview that you did was learning about the different similarities between across cult uh, cultural contexts, and some of them I found quite surprising. But I was wondering, do you think that they were the result of migration during the period, or is there some structural similarity that you know that's more inherent in human nature, which means that different societies come up with these very similar rituals? Yeah, it's a very good question. It's it's, it's almost the that the primary question of the, the whole topic when you're looking across, you know, comparatively, uh, is it transmission or is it is there something in human psychology and physiology that um, makes us come up with similar solutions to similar problems? So in some cases, 
I think it's it, it is just humans deal with the same issues wherever they are, and that's issues with sickness and um, and with interpersonal relationships um, and with the weather and things like this, and they tend to come up with solutions for them. In other cases, though, there are, some of the rituals do look so similar that you've got to wonder if they did spread um, through transmission, although very far, actually. So the one that I mention in the book as a case in point is this ritual known in Tibet as Prasena, or just Pra, uh, which Prasena is actually a um, Prakrit or Hindi word, but it's, uh, it came to Tibet from India. It's also uh, there in the Chinese uh, texts as well, which were translated from uh, from Sanskrit. Uh, and this is a divination ritual using a mirror or another reflective surface. So you can also use a, a shiny blade of a sword or uh, your thumbnail if it's been um, covered with oil so it's shiny. And um, it's a ritual of gazing into the reflective surface to uh, find the answers to your questions. Now, more specifically, though, the um, person doing the gazing has to be a young, uh, prepubescent child. So in this ritual, the child is installed in the ritual space, facing the mirror, and then a question is asked, and the child is told to gaze into the mirror, and then the child is um, questioned about what they see, and what they see is then interpreted, and that's the divination. So it's rather specific. So I found it interesting reading a bit more widely to find the same aspects of this ritual, the mirror, the child gazing, uh, the person who is the kind of master of the ritual then questioning the child, uh, are also found in magic in um, Jewish magic. Um, they're found in Northern Africa. Uh, and a very interesting 11th century account, which I quote in the book, about a priest doing this in England, uh, and the writer John of Salisbury, one of his students, was um, asked to gaze into the mirror and, and say what he saw um, by his Latin master. Uh, but then later in life, he realized that this was a, a probably a, a practice associated with demons, and, and therefore he was, he'd been asked to do something very wrong. Uh, but interestingly, it was it was the same elements of the ritual. So despite the fact that this is so far afield, if we go as far as China in one direction and uh, England in the other, it's hard to not to see that this must be some kind of uh, transmission of the same ritual across different cultures. Yeah, it's a really interesting thing to talk about. Um, I have a question going back to um, what you were previously saying about um, the reluctance to talk about Buddhist magic. Was that from Buddhist practitioners themselves, or is it scholars writing about Buddhism who avoided talking about the chop the topic? I think it's been both. I think there's a concern with practitioners, uh, including uh, Tibetan Buddhist uh, practitioners, Tibetan Buddhist kind of um, advocates of Buddhism, that uh, this topic would not cast them in a very favourable light in the West. So that was downplayed. And you see that, I mean, in the way that the Dalai Lama, for example, prefers to put Buddhism alongside science uh, rather than emphasizing this uh, magical aspect of it. So it's about presentation from within the tradition. 
but also there's the academic um there's definitely an academic unwillingness to engage with it for many decades although that's definitely changing now and i think partly it's a similar thing where writers in a emerging tradition buddhist studies not being very old uh, and tibetan buddhist studies being quite a recent part of that to have their work taken seriously and it's better if it kind of looks more philosophical or or fits better into some kind of accepted uh, academic uh, departmental structure so although recently ritual and magic have definitely become much more flavor of the month in academia there was a long time when it was better for your career to stay away from that kind of stuff i see okay um i was wondering if we could talk about the relationship between magic and medicine that you talk about um could you expand on that yes i mean it's interesting it's another case where i mean similarly to when i was talking about defining magic you can get very tangled up in the words that you use and the history so if you look at medicine in any pre-modern tradition it looks very much like magic there's, there's not very much different from what we call magic and, and what we call medicine so you can really see the history of medicine as uh, in a way defining itself as something separate from magical practices as, as um, becoming more uh, evidence-based and um and more kind of based on the kind of physical sciences so as you go further back in in any tradition uh, the buddhist various buddhist traditions um uh, other places in the world anything that we call magic any manuscripts the kind of things i've been talking about the scrolls the collections of, uh, of magical spells are as much about medicine as they are about magic they're about um they contain as many salves and potions and uh, and cures as they do anything else so the further you go back in time the harder it is to distinguish magic and, and medicine uh, i would say i mean one thing if we look at a, the tibetan book of spells that i translate is uh, it's very rare that you get uh, a cure that doesn't include some kind of recitation of a mantra um offering to a deity or, or visualization or so on so there is a uh shall we say a religious uh, element to most of the the practices that we might otherwise just call medicine so you might for instance make up a sesame seed mix for um curing uh um stomach problems or something like this but uh, you say a mantra over it uh, before you you uh, apply it but similarly in the european tradition um the um lord's prayer or um uh hail mary or something like this was was set over um cures and things in order to to make them effective so uh, we can become sort of uh, a bit tangled up in our own kind of modern versions of, th of these words if we try to distinguish them and if we try to use them to um to distinguish what was going on in in the pre-modern period basically uh what uh, people end up doing is using words like uh, magico medical or um medicine stroke magic uh, and there isn't really much more you can do than that magic is medicine and, uh, and medicine is is magic in the uh in early buddhist societies and in most pre-modern societies i'd say i'm just curious what were the um tibetan terms uh for medicine or magic that you were working with mm. so there's a clear term 
medicine uh, men. But uh, and then there are a number of different so different terms for magic. And I would, as I say in the book, there isn't in Tibet or other Buddhist traditions that I am aware of a word that you could directly translate as magic. So I'm quite clear that I'm using it here as a, a way to approach the subject and kind of set aside a, a certain area of, of practices and rituals to, to look at under the name magic. But within the tradition, there isn't one word that, um, that directly uh, translates as magic. So there's things like um, sorcery, mainly dealing with uh, black magic or aggressive practices. Uh, there's words like illusion. Um, and then there's uh, words to do with um, with curing, with medicine. Uh, so there, there isn't a sort of uh, direct correspondence between uh, one word for magic and one word for medicine in Tibet. And uh, I suspect you know that distinction wouldn't really mean anything in uh, linguistically in in, uh, in classical Tibetan either. Okay. Um, so we've discussed some of the different types of spells that you were translating and learning more about. Who was it that was engaging with the spells? Who was administering them and who was requesting them? Mm. It's very hard to say. Um, so I, 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 have, I did try to go into this a bit, and not just in Tibet, in the history of magic uh, across Buddhist cultures. So in the book, I look at some of the earliest evidence for Buddhist magic. For example, there's the Gandharan scrolls that are the earliest surviving Buddhist manuscripts found in the Afghanistan region. Uh, and among those, there's a Dharani spell for um, various, against for protection, basically, but against various uh, ills, whether um, disease, spirits, uh, and so on. Uh, and this is in a collection of mainly Buddhist monastic texts. There's commentaries, sutras, uh, all kinds of things like that. So it looks very much like a, a collection of uh, put together by Buddhist monks. So that's from the earliest evidence we have, that's one clue that it was the Buddhist monks themselves who were practicing these texts. There's another early collection from Gilgit uh, in Ladakh. And here there's even more evidence that the monks themselves were forming magic as a kind of service to the communities. So in Gilgit, it looks like you had a very small Buddhist settlement, maybe just uh, three or four monks, uh, and serving a small village. This was back in the 7th, 8th century. And what we can see from the manuscripts is that they were uh, writing out the protective Dharanis as, um, as a service to people who'd paid them to do this, so the patrons, uh, local patrons in the in the local village. And sometimes, actually, some of the manuscripts they've written out and they've left the names blank, the bit where you'd insert the name of the person to be protected by the, the spells. So they seem to have been kind of preparing things and, and then they would go uh, to the people in the, in the village and say, if you are uh, in need of protection, then we've got something ready for you and we can um, have it done for you uh, in a matter of moments. So there's evidence there in the early these early collections of, of manuscripts that it was monks who were uh, 
doing this. Also in Gilgit, you get scholastic things, you get uh, grammars for learning Sanskrit. Um, it's all kind of part of the that kind of monastic activity, but also there's magic there. So there's good evidence in uh, the manuscript tradition that it's monks doing it. And then if we look at, uh, I do this a bit as well, look at some contemporary societies, for example, Buddhism in Thailand, uh, you also see it's the monks that um, do services uh, like preparing amulets and so on for for the local community. So I think we can certainly say Buddhist monks were practicing magic. I think we can also say uh, there may have been Buddhist practitioners who were not monks, and it's certainly the case in Tibet, where you have the Nyakpa tradition, where they're, these are kind of married householders who are instructors in Buddhism and also provide services in um, magical practices to their patrons. Uh, that may be more specific to Tibet than uh, than other Buddhist cultures, but uh, we can certainly say I think the evidence is there that uh, very strongly that monks in monasteries were providing these um, these services. And again, alongside medicine, so you can't really distinguish these magical services from medical services. Um, and there's a good book um, by Kenneth Zisk on Buddhist magic kind of tracing, sorry, on Buddhist medicine, tracing the um, the development of, of medicine in, in India through Buddhist monasteries. Uh, and again, um, with, as he said as well, with, uh, in, in some cases, very little distinction between what we'd call magic and what we call medicine. That's really interesting. I think there are definitely some parallels in the Theravada world of lay practitioners performing uh, different magic rituals and monks as well. Um, mm-hmm. In contemporary Tibetan practice, is magic still something that uh, monks are practicing and learning about, or is it more underground? Um, it is definitely still part of the, um, I'd say, part of the sort of general education of uh, of um, monks. Not the not the sort of monastic sort of university education per se in, in philosophical texts and so on but uh, anybody who's going to be in a community and kind of making their living as a as a teacher and um and as a kind of um local uh, buddhist expert is likely to have some uh, skills in this area there are also people who specialize in in this so then there'd be kind of rainmakers for example um, or exorcists who might specialize in one area or another. Uh, it's not uh, always evident because, again, it's not always the side of um, Tibetan Buddhist practice that is most um, publicized in the West, but uh, it, it definitely is, is there in the, uh, in the education of, um, of uh, Tibetan Buddhist uh, monks and lamas. Okay. Um, in your book, you cover a range of very strange and obscure spells. I was wondering if you could tell us about the weirdest one that you came across, which was the most surprising. Hmm. Well, I mean, I was surprised to find uh, spells that are just for, uh, well, really for things that didn't really have any application to what we think of as uh, as as buddhism and uh, and one would wonder really how 
sometimes the uh, practitioners would justify using the spell. So, for example, there's a spell to to bring two people together, a love spell, basically, which involves writing their names uh, on a piece of paper and um, uh, and um, putting them uh, uh, on, on their persons. So, and, and then there's a the opposite of that spell, which is to break people up. Who, if there's two people who are in love and uh, somebody doesn't want them to be together, there's a, a spell to, to break them up. Um, and this is, you know, uh, you can see why these would exist. And as I said, they'd exist in, in, in many different cultures. But one does wonder how they are justified in a, in a Buddhist context. Um, and then there are the, the more fun ones, which are for invisibility or flying or, or um, hearing things over and seeing them over great distances, which um, would be very interesting to try. They, they sometimes involve rather um, complicated procedures, though, like make, making um, special mixtures and, and dotting them all over your body, uh, uh, and then um, burning incense and uh, uh, and then becoming invisible. So you'd have to be quite dedicated to to try this out. And uh, yes, as I said, I I. <laughs> I haven't done so myself, and I don't recommend uh, anybody try. Um, and if they do, uh, I won't be um, answerable for the consequences. <laughs> Have you ever seen any of the um, spells being performed in real life? Um, so I've seen the sort of, the, I guess, the more monastic side of it, where the the Dharanis are recited uh, and so on for protection. Uh, or the, the tormas are created, the, the ritual offering cakes, uh, and then cast out for the um, establishment of a, a house or, or this kind of thing. Um, yeah, done again by monks. Uh, I guess, you know, I, I haven't seen the the kind of thing that I just mentioned, the, the, the less obviously kind of, the, less, the things that are less justifiable in, in a Buddhist sense, but, um, but certainly do seem to be there uh, still in the, in the Buddhist tradition. Um, in the book, you mentioned the Burmese wakeser, the kind of invisible mm. wizards that also do these types of things. Do you know if there's any communication between the two schools of thought, or are they very separate um, traditions? Yes, I'm not aware that uh, they have been uh, in touch, although it, it's very interesting because uh, if you look at the, the wakeser, I mean, that word coming from the the Sanskrit Vidya, Vidyadhara, the, the, the name of the, the kind of specialist in spellcasting. Um, and that word also exists in Tibetan as Rigtsin. So we have a, possibly a kind of common, uh, common background to both traditions. And you know, whether there is a kind of tantric element to the Wakesa tradition and the, the magic in that tradition or not, um, doesn't really matter actually there's because uh, the ma magic Buddhist magic as I see it develop in India is something that is kind of comes along before tantric Buddhism before Vajrayana and is then kind of absorbed into it but I think before that point uh, it seems to have had an impact on Southeast Asian Buddhist traditions uh, and it's there in Theravada so I was interested to to realize while writing this book that for example a very popular Dharani, the Ushnisha Vijaya Dharani, very popular in Tibet, um, was also big in, in India, 
does exist in Pali and uh, is is known in um, in Theravada countries. Yeah, you mentioned the um, spells for trying to get someone to fall in love with you or breaking up a pair of lovers. In mm. the Thai tradition, they have special tattoos for things just like that, um, administered by a lay practitioner. So there are some common themes in the Theravada world, definitely. Oh, yes. Um, um, I was wondering if we could talk about the final chapter in the book, which is a translation of this Tibetan book of spells that you're working on. Could you tell us Mm. a bit what the translation process was like? Yes. Um, And as I mentioned earlier, it actually occurred over quite a long time because the first time I came across this little booklet was when I was working on a catalogue of all of the tantric manuscripts from Dunhuang along with uh, Jacob Dalton. And it was just something I had a few days to go through and then move on to uh, another manuscript. But it was really interesting. So at that point, I realised that this very roughly written, um, quite um, well-handled looking uh, little book wasn't a a single text was was actually a collection of lots of uh, very small rituals, uh, and though it wasn't easy to see, looking at the book and the the Tibetan text itself, they were divided um, by usually by saying if you want to, you know, if you want to cure a headache, or if you want to break up two lovers, or, or so on, and then a very brief ritual, and then saying what will happen. So I realised then it had this structure, and in the catalogue I wrote a kind of list of the spells as I understood them then. Um, So that was the first stage. And then more recently, when I decided I was going to translate, so I took that list, having that understanding that these were, this was a compendium of spells, and started to translate them um, bit by bit. And it was it was quite hard work, because being used to working on Buddhist texts, I hadn't come across a lot of the things like the materia medica that are talked about here, or the some of the medical terms for ailments uh, and so on. Uh, and also, one of the things about this book is it was clearly written for by somebody to use. So it's not very beautifully presented. Uh, it does contain mistakes, and it does contain little scrawls in between the lines where the person's written a note to themselves, basically. So in, in one case that I... I like uh, where it's a spell to stop somebody from being able to speak. It says to write uh, something on a piece of paper uh, and to put it in the mouth. And then they've written as a little note to themselves, put it in your own mouth, which makes the spell a bit easier, I think. (laughs) Um, So that it was a translation process that took a while. Uh, I mean, in some... other people probably find this with translation as well. In some cases, you can go through and really one pass or two passes might be enough. In this case, I had to return to it again and again to really uh, understand better what the spells were for, what was being used in them, um, and what some of these quite obscure terms were. Do you think you'll stick to um, writing about magic and spells or try and find more texts like this now that you've done this translation or are you moving on to different things? Well, one of the odd things about this, the the Book of Spells, is there isn't anything very similar in the um, Dunhuang collections anyway. What I did uh, do a bit of work on in the book was looking at the later Tibetan tradition where you have these compendia which are called Beobun in Tibetan, which are books of spells uh, from the 
eleventh century, where we have one by um, Barry Lotsola, through to a late nineteenth, early twentieth century Lama called Mipam, who wrote one of the uh, one of the most famous and one of the latest uh, Beobum texts. So there is a whole tradition to explore there. Whether I will myself, I'm, I'm not sure. So I, I think, uh, as you said, I, I moved from uh, International Dunhuang Project to the Endangered Archives Program. This is a program that uh, sponsors the digitization of uh, manuscripts and other materials that are at risk across the world. And it has some fascinating Buddhist collections of, of various kinds, including uh, stuff that fall under the uh, definition of, of my, my definition of magic. So um, uh, a project by um, Valentina Punsi on Nagpas in Ando, for example, um, and also medicine, uh, medical manuscripts from India. Um, so this is a really fascinating resource, which uh, if I have the chance, I'll go a bit further into exploring, I think, and uh, maybe it's still under the, the heading of magic. We'll see. This is just an afterthought, but I was wondering, could you tell us a bit about Dunhuang? Because your mm. Tibetan Book of Spells are part of this project, but um, we didn't really talk about what that is. No, no, quite right. That's true. Um, yes, yeah, so the importance of that collection is that uh, this is a small cave uh, that was uh, part of a much bigger cave complex uh, in near the town of Dunhuang in eastern Central Asia, uh, now Gansu province in China. And in 1900, this complex of, of Buddhist cave temples was being renovated and one of the walls was uh, broken through and this small sub-cave was found which was stacked with manuscripts and paintings and some other Buddhist uh, ritual material. And due to the sort of various colonial um, exploration and archaeological surveys going on at the time, a number of people from different uh, countries visited, including Europe, France, Japan, uh, and then the authorities from Beijing actually sent people down to gather what remained. So the collection of that cave then over the early 20th century was dispersed into uh, institutions in London and Paris and um, across uh, private collections in Japan, um, also in St. Petersburg uh, and in, in Beijing. So the International Dunhuang Project was a project to digitally reunite that material. Um, and the importance of the material is that uh, when it was studied in the early 20th century, it was realized that the cave itself must have been sealed at the beginning of the 11th century. So it became a kind of time capsule for uh, the study of uh, Buddhism, history, uh, the Silk Road, and so on. The collection itself was probably formed from the collection of Buddhist monks and monastic libraries. And it's roughly um, mostly Chinese and Tibetan with some other Central Asian languages like Cotonese and Sogdian and also Sanskrit. Um, so it's a, it's a real resource for understanding Chinese Buddhism, Tibetan Buddhism particularly, because it's actually the earliest um, manuscript cache of this kind in, in Tibetan Buddhism. Um, and it's, uh, it's been fascinating working with it and uh, it always throws up new surprises and interesting discoveries. And uh, the International Dunhuang Project continues and uh, I hope uh, will continue to kind of represent a really 
important cooperation between uh, these countries in the West uh, to which these manuscripts were dispersed due to kind of colonial activities and uh, the National Library of China and the Dunhuang Academy, which also have collections. So it it's kind of represents a, uh, a proper and really, really um, constructive international collaboration. And uh, though I'm not uh, kind of officially a part of it any anymore, I, I do hope that it continues. It's such an exciting and important project. Mm. Um, I was wondering, just to wrap things up, other than your Endangered Archives program, is there anything else that you're working on research-wise? Hmm. So um, I'm working on a, gradually on the um, religious songs of a 15th century Tibetan monk called uh, Karma Tindley. And the reason why is the... Um, Lama Jampa Taye, the Buddhist teacher and uh, and um, academic that I mentioned was my supervisor and also my my Buddhist teacher. His Tibetan teacher was the um, current Karma Tindle Rinpoche. Um, so I've always had an interest in his uh, very eminent um, ancestor back in the 15th century. Uh, this Karma Tindle wrote on the Tibetan traditions of Mahamudra and um, the philosophical traditions of Madhyamaka and, and so on. So he, he was very um, a kind of very uh, educated scholar, but also wrote very uh, poetic and quite entertaining sometimes songs about uh, being you know, a Buddhist monk, uh, going on retreat, um, dealing with uh, his own failings and so on. So I'm, I'm going through that. It is, it's a kind of uh, different... Uh, thing for me away from the uh, world of Dunhuang and, uh, and other things I've been working on recently. And maybe that will turn into something at some point. But for now, it's just enjoyable to um, to carry on translating and uh, work on something which is, is um, interesting and rewarding. That sounds great. Um, thanks so much for being here, Sam. Um, I think we'll sign off there. And I hope everybody checks out your book. Thanks, Olivia.